If you would turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, and find verse 22. Well, there are a lot of things that bring me joy on the Lord's Day, every Sunday morning when we gather. One, one little thing that you don't know about is that uh, there's an old retired minister named Johnny who every Sunday morning prays for me. And then he sends me a text to let me know that he's prayed for me every Lord's Day morning before I preach. In one of his texts to me recently, he shared his definition of Christmas. He wrote, Christmas means you can have joy in him. That's Brother Johnny's definition of Christmas, that you can have joy in him. In our Christmas sermon series, we've found that Scripture teaches us that every believer has joy in Christ, a deep-seated joy, a long-seated joy. We remembered that Mary was blessed by God to bear the Son of God, and she was filled with joy. Even her cousin Elizabeth and the baby, John the Baptist, in her womb was filled with joy to be in the presence of the yet-unborn Christ. And the shepherds we looked at were blessed by God to hear the good news of great joy, the gospel, proclaimed by the heavenly host. And they were filled with great joy. And this morning we're we're looking again at the Christmas joy of John the Baptist, this time not a baby in the womb, but rather some 30 years later as he carries out his God-given ministry to herald the coming of Jesus the Savior. If you want to follow along on your Sermon outline, you'll see this theme, true Christmas joy finds completeness in seeing others become devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We joyfully serve him, and we joyfully decrease as he increases in glory. Well, let's read John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, to the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, I now, is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the true earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of God. Now this is the second half of John chapter 3. It's the half of of chapter 3 that we rarely go back to to read. We often go back and read the first half of John chapter 3 for encouragement in many ways. That's where Jesus is in Jerusalem. And Nicodemus the Pharisee visits Jesus in the darkness under cloak of darkness to compliment him, to pay him some respects. And Jesus scolds Nicodemus for being a teacher who doesn't understand that he must be born again from above in order to see the kingdom of heaven. We've even memorized John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then... John puts forth the main part of his argument for his entire gospel in verse 18. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the only Son of God. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us explicitly that this is the purpose for him writing the gospel. He writes, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So in verse 22, where we began reading this morning, it's after this that Jesus and his disciples depart from the city of Jerusalem and they go out into the Judean countryside. Now this account is unique to John's gospel. You won't find this in the other Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. But here, in John's Gospel, Jesus has a brief ministry in Judea before returning to Galilee. John is the Apostle John, the author. He accomplishes two things with these verses, with this second half of chapter 3. First, he gives us an account of John the Baptist's continuing witness to Jesus. In the Synoptic Gospels, John's ministry seems kind of done after he baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. But here we see John continuing in his God-given ministry to point people to Jesus. And then secondly, the author is making a theological point, and it is that Jesus is above all things, even above John, even above the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. So he's really pointing to the supremacy of Christ. Now this is a curious event. At a place in the Judean countryside, where there is both a spring and a river, some distance apart, both Jesus and John are baptizing disciples. So there's this brief moment in time where their ministries overlap. John clarifies this moment by saying it was before the baptizer's imprisonment by Herod. Because in, in the other Gospels, it's after John's been imprisoned that the Galilean ministry begins. But here, Here, John the author is clarifying that John the Baptist is still alive and still ministering. And he has some more clarifying comments if we look down the page a little bit to chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So we can see in that narration that Jesus, uh, we see Jesus', Jesus Judean ministry before the Galilean ministry. We learn that Jesus' disciples were doing the actual baptizing, just in case you were wondering, not Jesus himself. And we see that according to the number of people being baptized, Jesus' ministry was gaining in popularity, while John's ministry 
is in decline. Which fits the concern that arises among John's disciples. John's disciples have a difference of opinion with a Jew on the topic of purification. The Jew points to the Old Testament, which contains many ceremonial rites involving washing and cleansing for ritual purification. John is performing, by performing baptism, a water purification rite in baptizing repentant sinners, washing them clean of their sins in their commitment to be repentant followers of God. So water baptism is a link to purification. After the conversation with the Jew about purification, John's disciples go to John himself, and they ask him a question. They call him rabbi, which means teacher, and they express their concern over Jesus' growing ministry of purification and John's waning ministry of purification. That's the, that's the, that's the ministry they work for, John the Baptist's ministry. More people are going to Jesus and fewer people are going to John, and that troubles them. Even though Jesus is the one to whom John has over and over again borne witness. It's curious to us that anyone is still coming to John. I mean, when I read this, I'm like, well, you know, didn't John like fold up his tent? You know, just follow Jesus? What happened here? Well, John was called to a ministry, and he's remained faithful to it. But when people do come to John, he continues to faithfully call them to repentance, to baptize them as a purification rite, and point them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, just like he has everyone else. And instead of saying to his disciples, who, who say, well, they're all going to Jesus, instead of just saying, well, yeah, that's fine, John gives a more rabbinical answer in the form of a teachable moment. And so he offers some teaching here, beginning in verse 27. John answered his disciples, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John, John the first thing he says, the first thing he says is he lays the groundwork for this question with an understanding of God's sovereignty overall. A God who is providential, he gives. A God who is holy because he's pure. You believers in God, everything you have, John says, you've received. And everything you've received, you received from God in heaven. Things like purification and repentance of sin. But John does not speaking specifically about purification here. He's speaking about the purifier. Who's the one who purifies? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. From heaven is another way of saying from God. John is not from heaven. Not the way Jesus is from heaven. But there is a sense in which John the prophet is given from heaven in his role as the forerunner. The one who came before Jesus to bear witness to Jesus. Still, Jesus Christ is the greater gift of God. John has always been clear on who he is not when he says, I am not the Christ. And John has always been clear on who he is when he says, I am the one who was sent before him. There's no confusion in John's mind whatsoever. 
Back in John chapter 1, before Jesus was on the scene, and many were going out to be baptized by John, he has this interaction with the priests and the Levites sent from Jerusalem to find out who he is. They asked John, who are you? He confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked, what do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Then they asked him, why are you baptizing? John answered them, I baptize with water, but one among you stands one who does, uh, excuse me, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And the very next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, referring to Jesus' eternality as the Son of God. All this, John has testified about himself and about Jesus. And what's surprising is not that some of his disciples are feeling let down that Jesus' ministry isn't what it once, or John's ministry isn't what it once was. We expect that kind of disappointment from time to time among people. What's surprising is John's persevering faithfulness to humble himself and to exalt Jesus every single time without fail. In verse 29, John uses a parable then to explain his own view of his role in God's plan of redemption. John is the friend who attends the bridegroom. We would call him the best man. But he has more duties than our modern-day best man would have. A best man in that time in Judea, he organizes and details and presides over the wedding. And his greatest joy is watching the ceremony to take place without a single hitch. And in knowing that the bridegroom and the bride are forever united with great rejoicing all around them. That's the best man's joy that John the Baptist has now. This isn't one of those TV shows, right? This isn't one of those TV shows. John's not trying to steal the bride. And John's not trying to break the bridegroom's heart. No, John has been a faithful forerunner to the Messiah. And John has the final and ultimate satisfaction of knowing that his God-given ministry has been successful. It's all worked out as God wanted it to. John's disciples have a little more processing to do related to becoming less as Jesus becomes more. But John is already there. The rising prominence of Jesus floods John with surpassing joy because that is precisely what John has been working for. John's complete joy is a full joy and a lasting joy. It's a hall of fame joy. By that I mean, you know, even today, we can take joy in John's successful role in God's plan of redemption and we can rejoice. Way to be faithful, John. Way to be steadfast, John. Way to pave the way, John, with a call to repentance. Way to be faithful to the end. Way to be joyful when the, when the bride gathered to the bridegroom. John is not forlorn. John is not deflated when he says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. He doesn't say that with his head hung low but with his chin up. 
This is God's plan. It's a little bit like a relay runner winning his leg of the race and successfully handing off the baton to the final runner, the team's fastest runner, who everyone knows is going to win. John is not in competition with Jesus. John was never drawing people to himself. He was always calling sinners to God in repentance of their sins and always pointing people to Jesus, the one who baptizes with the Spirit and with fire. John wholeheartedly embraces the will of God and the supremacy of Christ, who's his Savior too, by the way. He must increase, but I must decrease. Hallelujah. Everything's going according to God's plan. And now John the Baptist, the quotation marks for John the Baptist end in verse 30. So when we pick up in verse 31, this is John the Gospel writer with a clear explanation as to why it is that Jesus must increase. Why is it that Jesus must increase? Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The basis... For John the Baptist's joy, and for our joy, is that we are in Christ who is above all. John says it twice for emphasis so that we couldn't possibly miss it. Jesus who comes from above is above all. And Jesus who comes from heaven is above all. They both mean the same thing. They mean that Jesus whom God has sent is above all. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, verse 3? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You see, the word in verse 3, translated above, is the same word in verse 31 translated, or excuse me, again, is, uh, is translated from above in verse 33. Same word. You must be born again or born from above. To experience the new birth, from above, you must have faith in the only one who is from above. Jesus. Who is of the earth? Well, John, the author, is of the earth. John, the Baptist, is of the earth. You and me, we're of the earth. We give testimony to the things of earth. Our speech needs to be purified. And we need to be purified. Jesus is born from above. He testifies of what he has seen and heard. Pure things. He speaks what is true. He testifies to what is true. So true joy, complete joy, comes from above. And yet, John says, no one receives his testimony. You know, Jesus said the same thing to Nicodemus back in verse 11. He told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. It's not that nobody believed anything that Jesus said, but what is Jesus 
primary testimony according to John's gospel. That he is the only son of God. The one whom God sent so that we might have life. That's what they're not believing. So the obvious New Year's question for you is, do you believe in Jesus, the Son of God who saves? Do you believe his testimony, which is the gospel, that he is the Son of God who saves? Have you resolved to believe that gospel? Do you trust completely that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins? Are you depending completely on Jesus' resurrection from the dead as his promise of your resurrection from the dead? Are you relying completely upon these truths from God spoken by Christ, his gospel? John says, it's an interesting phrase, John says, set your seal upon your life to believe the true good news. When you believe this, you've set your seal to say, this is true. Set your seal upon your own life by faith in Jesus, that God is true. And then take joy in what is true. You can, you see, with complete confidence, trust Christ and his gospel for salvation from God's just wrath upon your sin. And John gives you two assurances why you can do that. First, you can believe Jesus whom God sent from above, because Jesus speaks the true words of God the Father by the power of God the Spirit. That's what verse 34 means. Look at verse 34. You can trust Jesus to speak God's own true words to you because God set his Holy Spirit upon Jesus. And we have record of that at Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Back in John chapter 1. Turn back to John chapter 1 and verse 31. John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You know, throughout all of history, God has given His Spirit to prophets, to kings, and to priests with measure. With measure. But He has given His Holy Spirit to Jesus, His Son, without measure. All of Him. Second, God the Father loves Jesus, his Son, and has purposed to give him all things. God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1.10 When God raised Christ from the dead, he seated Christ at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of God who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23. You see, Jesus is the one who came from above and is above all. 
Jesus is the one who came from heaven and is above all. Jesus is the very Son of God whom God loves and has given all things, especially all of His Spirit. So that everything that Jesus says, especially about the joy of salvation, all of this is true. And all of this is so that, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Be born from above by the love of God. Have the truth of God and live your life by it. Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. All of this by responding to the Word of God this morning. Believe in Christ and have life in Him. And joy everlasting in Him. Not earthly, fleeting joy, but deep, abiding, John says, complete joy. Complete joy. To not respond to the one whom God sent from above. To reject the one who is above all, who is above you. To choose to remain among those who do not receive the testimony of Christ's gospel to remain in your sin, to never have the joy of Christ from above, carries with it the worst of consequences. While whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Turn to Christ. Believe in God. Set your seal on what's true. For we who believe, we must do two things. You could call these New Year's resolutions for joy. First, Jesus must increase in us for our joy to be complete. You like a little joy in Christ? You'll love a lot of joy in Christ. And it's yours. I mean this first in a personal sense, in your own sanctification. Jesus must become more to us than we are to ourselves so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, 1-3. So that like Mary, our very souls would magnify the Lord because of the joy within us. Secondly, a New Year's resolution for joy would be to have a complete joy. Complete joy is a joy that sees others coming to saving faith in Christ. That's, that's kind of where the loop closes, right? You hear the word of God, you believe Christ saves you from God's wrath upon your sin. You grow in knowing Christ. And then like John the Baptist, you tell others about him. And it goes on. It's the plan of God. It's the plan of God for the spread of the gospel. And the saving of sinners. The building up of the church. And his glorious inheritance in the saints on the day of his return. 
Like John, we've been called to point people to Jesus, to proclaim his gospel, to spread his joy to others. Why? You could be called a lot of things that are worse than being a joy spreader, couldn't you? We've been filled with the Spirit of God to proclaim the truth of God to others, the good news of great joy, which is for all people. It's for all people, so we don't want to be the ones who would reserve who to share it with, would we? We want to be like those shepherds who returned to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. Aren't you finding, aren't you finding by faith, by the power of the Spirit as you read the Word of God, aren't you finding everything to be just as it's been told to you in this Word? Haven't you been finding Christ strong for you? Haven't you found Him savingly? Haven't you found Him to be with you always? And He will be to the end? Yes. It's all just as we've been told. That's how we're finding it. And so like John the Baptist, we must resolve to be joyful in seeing many, many, many more people become worshipers of Jesus Christ. That's a joy completer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the salvation that it brings. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us. We want to be we want to be made less. And we want Christ to be made more. We want that to be true in our hearts. We want that to be true in our lives. We want that to be true in our marriages and in our friendships and in our parenting and in our workplace and in our schoolrooms. Father, we long to see others become worshipers of Christ and so we pray that you'd find us faithful to tell them about him. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.